0: So if you haven't noticed this morning, our focus is on storms. Do you ever go through times in life that you might call a storm? And interestingly, you don't always know when a storm is going to strike. Sometimes you think you know, and sometimes it goes around you. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it can catch you off guard. Well, this morning I want to lead with a very interesting story I came across this week of some men that took their two weeks to put in their time at the U.S. Coast Guard Station at Great Anagua, which is part of the Bahamas, very southern part. I'll show you a map here in just a moment. Uh, But they described, you know, we we had to leave home for a while, and that was okay, but it was our turn, and we were going to serve, and a lot of the stuff is pretty mundane. You know, we help out with this and a few other things along the way, but we have plenty of time to exercise and to snorkel, and so that's what we were planning. But at the end of September, the very first part of October, a storm started brewing. And here's a picture of that storm. I don't know if we can activate it here a little bit. It was a storm that I had never heard of. It was called Joaquin. I don't know if you heard of this hurricane, Joaquin, back in 2015. It was just shy of a Category 5 at its height, with sustained winds of 155 miles an hour. Now, to put that in perspective a little bit, a skydiver reaches terminal velocity at around 118 miles an hour. So that's pretty fast. And the thing that was unique about Joaquin, this hurricane, was that it was very challenging to predict. And maybe you've seen a lot of these things before, and how typically the hurricane will oftentimes come west, and then at some point it often will arc and go north and to the east. You've seen those pictures before, and that was largely their projections. But you, if you live in Florida or have friends in Florida and followed hurricanes before, you know that sometimes it does what they project and sometimes it doesn't. And this was a hurricane that all the projections continued to be wrong. And so there were two boats in this story. I'm really going to focus on the smaller boat there. And you might say, why is that one so small? Because in relationship to each other, that's kind of the size. This one was about a fourth the size of the El Faro And this other one, the Minos, which is French, I'm told, they were both leaving. In fact, there were many, many boats leaving, and they were all trying to watch and keep an eye on this hurricane. But you're not sure, is this going, you know, if I stay up high, is it going to come up and meet me there? If I go down low, will I just miss it, miss it when it turns? And so that was kind of the dilemma that many of them found themselves in. Now, if you look at this little whatever you call it here, map of of what's happening. You see down here at the very bottom, this is Inagua, the U.S. Coast Guard Station. This was the larger boat coming down. The larger ship ended up right in the middle of this hurricane. And even though they did all kinds of passes in the middle of the hurricane, mind you, in a plane, at those high winds, they couldn't find that ship and nothing was ever seen or heard until after the fact. Um, But all of the crew uh, of 33 people died in the El Faro. But the Minosh ended up in a much more favorable position. But as I mentioned, it was only a fourth of the size, 200 miles away from the El Faro, a little bit south, as you see here. And they were racing east in an attempt to outrun the storm. But even though that eye you see, you know that the, the spread of the hurricane is much larger And so both of them were running as fast as they could to try and avoid what they thought was the path of this storm. They were battling waves of 20, 30 feet high. Cargo was starting to rock on the Minosh. The weight shifted causing the ship, uh, the ship badly to lean to the port or left side of the boat. And so in response, the the crew tried to fill up a ballast tank on the right side or starboard side of the boat. And while they were working to do that, then the crane that unloads all of this cargo, it swept to the left. So again, it went to the left. Before they knew it, the whole boat was out of power and the waves were starting to bash the ship from the side with very little, if anything, that they could do besides hit the emergency protocols, signal for help and try and get the life raft out. Now, on this boat, there were only 12 people. And so the life raft was sufficient. It inflated as soon as it hit the water. And when it was safe, they all ducked inside. There was a little tent on top. And so now they're out in the middle of this, maybe not in the middle of the hurricane, but in the middle of the ocean in very high seas, bobbing around up and down. This slide says bobbing alone out there in the storm. They were only now grasping the magnitude of their situation. What are we going to do now? We sent out an SOS, if you will. They knew the coordinates. We're hoping someone will respond. I guess now we just wait and see what happens. There's nothing more that we can do. There's a little beacon light flashing and the raft is orange. Those are all good things. But granted, this is a serious storm that we find ourselves in. Well, that's when the call went to these individuals at the Inagua Coast Guard base. And so they sprung into action. They were suiting up, getting all the gear that they needed, emptying a few things from the helicopter because they heard that they were 12 on the boat. We're going to need the space to try and bring them all back. And these were the four crew that got in the helicopter. And if you look at this map, their island is still very much in this storm. And so the rain is pelting down. The waves are crashing on the island. And now the call comes, open up the hangar right? It's a helicopter, a little, I don't know, John Deere type tractor thing comes and grabs the thing, pulls it out into the weather, and the whole thing starts rocking, and they fire it up faster, go through all their checks, make sure they have all their gear, and now their blood is pumping. They're no longer on a snorkeling expedition in the sunny weather. They're on a mission. And so let me go back to the picture of these men here. Joshua Andrews, I'll refer to him as Andrews. His job was to secure the basket that went up and down. This other guy was the commander, Dave McCarthy. So he was primarily overseeing the whole thing. Ben uh, Kernia, he was the rescue swimmer, not the job that I would want. And then you have the pilot, or it says co-pilot, but they said he did most of the flying on this mission. And so out in these high-speed winds, they are navigating this helicopter. And sometimes it would blow up really fast, and then down really fast, and right, and left, and the rain is just pelleting the sides and all over, and the waves are rough. Here we go, looking for the raft at these coordinates. About 30 minutes later, they find the boat. Sure enough, by this time, it's on its side. They do one lap around. This is actually footage taken from their infrared goggles that they're wearing or mask or whatever. And so they see this boat just being kind of hit by these waves. It doesn't look like big waves, but it's also a big boat. They come around a second time. By the third time they lap around, the boat is already going under. They were shocked at how quickly a boat of that size was sinking. Lights still on and plummeting quickly down, 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 down. They said it was kind of eerie, almost ghostly like to see the lights below this dark black water and the waves going over top, over top, over top. But then they find the raft and they open the door. And the swimmer, he feels instantly, in fact, they all feel the air come rushing in and the rain and the wind pelleting. And he looks out at the waves and the ocean crashing below or or sizing below. And they turn on the spotlight. There's so much rain, it just shines back in their face. They turn the spotlight off. He says, This was the moment we'd all train for time to go in so he puts the cable hooks the cable on and this is not footage from that this is a sunnier day but this is how it basically goes they repel you or, or lower you down i guess it's not technically repelling down to the water and then andrews the guy that was up there at the top he's the eyes for the pilot so he said swimmer out of the co- you know out of the the aircraft swimmer halfway down swimmer in the water swimmer as detached safe for us to depart." as they're trying their best to hold steady. The pilot said he had to watch the gauges the entire time because his whole equilibrium was so, so thrown off he couldn't tell where level was. Can you imagine going down and unclipping? go time right Edwin this is it he remembers before he actually stepped out he said you know I thought to myself the longer I sit here and stare at it the more scared I'm going to be so let's just go he gave thumbs up and he went he starts swimming 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 trying to get to the raft he gets to the raft they unzip the thing he says "Does anybody in here know English one of them says I do he says good we have a translator and he says anybody injured no nobody's injured and he says oh, I I went for the one that looked the most scared I said come with me and he pulled them out into the waves they go and the, everything's rolling and the wind and all the rest and they're waiting. for the basket. He puts them into the basket, hoists them up. First one's up. Turns around to go back. How many more left? Eleven. There's no raft. Finally, he looks way off in the distance, a hundred yards away. There's the raft. He's got flippers the snorkel. He starts swimming with all that he has over, 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 over. Takes him five minutes to catch back up with the raft. It's just being blown by the wind. Finds another guy, pulls him out, puts him up in the basket. Andrews is watching all of this from the top. He says, I don't know how long he's going to be able to to make this. He says, no. New plan. We're gonna start taxing you back over to the raft every time. Okay, that sounds good to me. And so they grab onto him, take him a little further, which again is dangerous because you have big rollers coming, and here you have this man dangling, and all of a sudden you might get blown into a a wave or something. So they take him and drop him off. They keep doing this time and time again. One complication that comes up is one man doesn't like the idea of being saved. Everybody's in panic mode. Tensions are high. He screams at the top of his lungs, grabs the rescuer with all his might, starts pushing him him down, climbing on top. He's trained for this. He goes for pressure point just below the jugular and another one somewhere just above the elbow. I don't know where these are, but he grabs these. He gets them under uh, the right control where he's dragging them backwards, puts him on the basket, He goes up, three down, a lot more to go. Again and again and again. Everything is so rough and the swimmer is thinking, we're not gonna have a lot of fuel left. Sure enough, by number eight, getting into the chopper, in fact, right before number eight, Andrew says, I need you to clear this space. We have more people coming. They're all just laying there not responding at all. I need you to move! Some have bloody noses, but everything, everybody is more or less okay, except they're in such shock, it takes about 10 minutes for them to kind of wake up from this nightmare they're in and actually go and sit in a seat. But after number eight is in there, he says, you're going to have to come back up. We're running out of fuel. We have to go back. Luckily, the island's not too far away. The wind is at their back. 15 minutes later, they're back at the island. They're geared up in their minds. Quick turnaround. As they're coming down, bird gets in the rotor. So now another 40 minutes, they're going to have to go through all all this checklist to make sure there's no feathers and other stuff in all their gear or the helicopter I should say. While they're doing that they're checking the gears, the cable okay, is it, you know, is the integrity good? Looks good. So they head back out, they're back there. The first guy goes he goes down again to get the next guy. Number 9 pulls him in and as Andrews is kind of holding the cable and steadying it because there's a lot of rock back and forth and he doesn't want this guy to slam into something he's not supposed to. He feels something catch on his glove. The cable is starting to become untwined. You've got to be kidding me. We have a compromised cable. We're going to have to go back again. Hoist the swimmer back up. They hoist Ben back up. Fly back to the island. They're radioing. We need a new helicopter. Get the other one ready. The word comes back. We have a problem. Yeah, what's that? The hangar. Now this hangar was built like Fort Knox because it's right there in Hurricane Alley. I mean, we're talking 60,000 pounds and the door is super heavy and the whole thing. It won't open. What do you mean it won't open? I don't know it won't open. Fix it. We need this other helicopter. By the time they get back, they figure something out. The door opens. They get in the other helicopter, fly back out. And by this time, the storm is worse, not better. And he swims out to try to get the next or the last three remaining uh, people in the raft. And one by one, they come up. Nobody's hurt. Everybody gets in safely and successfully. And finally, this guy, I'm sure, exhausted. In fact, I've wondered if he didn't have the rest of the other trips, what would have happened? But finally... All 12 make it back in. There was one more catch, I should say, on this last part. As the storm increased, there was much more lightning, and they were fearful that there would be too much electricity because there's static in the helicopter and in the lightning. And sure enough, they put a rod on the cable, but the storm blew it off to try and help the electricity go down and ground the thing. It got taken away. And as Andrews was trying to steady one of the first few people that came, came through his body. He says, we're just going to have to be more careful. Next time I grab, I'm going to have to make sure that basket's touching the water. Otherwise, I'm hoping for the best. And there's actually another detail I forgot. One of the last guys coming up, a big bit of wind comes by. The whole helicopter is doing like this. You can actually watch a video of it. This nice, courteous lady, computerized lady, comes on. Altitude, altitude, altitude. Meaning, you need to watch your altitude, altitude. In the meantime, the basket gets hit by a wave underneath and starts to get pulled out. Andrew has to flip this thing so he can just run like if you're a deep sea fisherman. Goes the basket. They're trying to recover. Altitude, altitude. And then finally they pull him back up and, and trying to get him back into the plane. Enough of this drama already. They all made it back. All 12 men survived. And to read the account, yes, they were courageous. But above all that, they all said the same thing. This is what we had trained for. And because of their training, they knew what to do. They knew how to respond. They remained calm under some pretty horrific circumstances. And despite setback after setback after setback, does your life ever feel that way? But the end result, all 12, made it back alive and in one piece. We're continuing our series on Paul And in the story of Paul, we find Paul in a storm as well. What about you and your storms in life? Have you trained for the upcoming storm? Are you prepared for the coming crisis? And storms can take many forms. It may be a relationship that seems to be sinking beyond all hope. Perhaps it's a storm of unemployment. Perhaps it's a storm of personal finances. You don't see a way out. Perhaps it's a storm of your adult children and the path they are choosing. Perhaps you're facing consequences of your own making and it's too much to bear. Friends, whatever your storm this morning, thank you, Abby, for reading this verse. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. We have hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, which the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become our high priest. So what's the hope? What's the anchor? It's Jesus being the forerunner. It's Jesus going before us. It's Jesus ministering in the heavenly sanctuary, the courts above, in our behalf. And with that being the case, what can man do to me? What storm can prevail against me? I have hope. It's an anchor to my soul. And his name is Jesus Christ. So in this peace. Continuing in this series with Paul, reliable anchors for your storm-tossed soul. You may think, now Paul has been through just about everything. He's been run out of town. People have been rioting because of his message. People have been plotting to take his life at all costs. Some have even said, we're going to fast until he's dead. That's how much they hated him. We've had arrests. We've had imprisonment. We've had trials filled with false witnesses and inaccurate information by none other than church folk, church leaders we should say, and after a seamless or a seeming endless waiting games, time after time after time, his appeal is finally granted to go appeal to Caesar, to go to Rome. And so in today's piece, he finds himself on a boat sailing for Italy. Maybe Italy was on his bucket list. Maybe he's imagining nice, pristine beaches, but I doubt it. So we're going to pick up the story, though. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Good thing to have with you when you come to church. If you don't have a Bible there, there's a copy in front of you in the pew. But I want you to see and read these words for yourself. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Acts chapter 27, beginning verse 1. And when it was decided that we, doesn't say Paul, but that we, who's writing this account in the book of Acts? Luke. And so Luke is along as an eyewitness to this whole thing. He's on board. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. And so Julius is in charge. He is the man that is taking all these prisoners to Rome, and Paul is one of them. Skipping down to verse 3. And the next day we landed in Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to uh, go to his friends and receive care. You might say, well, where is Sidon? We're going to put a map up here. He started out here... This is Caesarea. Sidon's not too far away. And you're going to see they're going to take this little path. We're going to get some words about where he's going. And the main part of our story is when they leave here and get in the storm here on their way eventually to Rome. And why would Paul need care from his friends? Uh, or to be treated kindly and liberty to go to his friends and receive care? Well, Spirit Prophecy tells us in Acts of the Apostles 440, the permission was greatly appreciated by the apostle who was in what kind of health? Feeble health. Anybody here feel like you're in feeble health? Not in tip-top condition? And could it be that his health was poor because of the conditions he'd been living in? You don't get all of the perks in prison. Nor do lashings feel good, but for whatever case, Paul is feeble in health. But that's really the last we hear of it. We don't even get a clear picture of that from the doctor, but that's really what we have. Continuing on, verse 4, When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia or Lucia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship, sailed to Italy, and put us on board. And so he's just documenting where they're going along the way, showing us the route that we've pinpointed there. They get on a new ship, and they continue to march along. When we had sailed slowly many days, verse 7, and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitted us, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of La Sia. And so here's our map again. And anybody that sailed, or even if you've canoed or paddled, you're always looking for the best weather, the best way to get there. And so at this point, the winds were coming from the north and maybe a little bit to the west. And so they're finding shelter behind this island here in the middle called Crete. And they're just kind of weaving their way along. I mean, there's 9,000 foot mountains on that island. Pretty good shelter. This is also where Paul leaves Titus. But the people of Crete are not really described well in Scripture. Let's see, Titus chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, as Paul relates, Cretans had a reputation for lying, gluttony, and being generally vicious and immoral people. That was their reputation. So maybe a nice stopover, but not necessarily a vacation destination, a place that you want to stay. Um, One prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Have mercy. I hope they don't say that about us here in Hendersonville. So, where we are in the point of the story, they're in Fair Haven, which you see here on the map, but they're with a general, brutish, immoral type of people. At least that's their reputation. And so we continue here, verse 9. So, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them. Let's unpack that a little bit. The sailing is now becoming more dangerous. The fast is over. The fast that they are talking about is the Day of Atonement, and would have fallen in late September or early October. And the Romans regard the end of May to the middle of September as safe to travel the seas. That's when you would do all your traveling. So really the summer through the middle of September was good sailing. But then things started to change. From the middle of September through November, it was considered, well, risky. And then from November onward, you were just being crazy to be out at sea. And so they're entering into that time of riskiness. When it comes to traveling, they know full well they're not going to make it all the way to Rome. They're going to have to winter somewhere until the end of May comes around again. And so everybody is wondering, where are we going to winter at? Where are we going to be? We like to go down to Florida to winter. Can we do that? No, that's not one of the options. And so Paul speaks up in verse 10. Paul advised them saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only if the cargo, of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. So here we have a prophet of God saying, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't foresee that this is going to end well, not for the cargo, not for the boat, and not for us. And so they respond positively and say, Thanks for the warning. We'll just hunker down here. Is that what your translation says i haven't seen hunker in any translation but anyway verse 11 nevertheless the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman that's another word for captain and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by paul and because the harbor was not suitable in winter the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. For whatever reason, Phoenix was a better place to winter. And so we have three reasons. The prophet gives his two cents, so he shouldn't do this. This is dangerous. And they say, no, we're going to trust the captain, the owner of the boat. They're the professionals. What was the second reason? Well, the harbor here just isn't suitable. I mean... Hang out here all winter, and that's going to be so lame. I mean, let's just get on with it already. And the third reason? Well, they have the majority. The majority want to try. They want to risk it. Now time out right there. I'll give these people a pass, because I don't see anything here that tells me that, is it Julius? Yeah. Doesn't say that Julius is converted, it doesn't say that he's a Christian, doesn't say that all the other prisoners are converted or Christian, and so they really don't have any reason to feel like Paul's authority is any higher or of any more significance than anybody else. So I'll give them a pass. But here's my question for us this morning. When the prophet speaks to us, what's our response? Because I'll tell you, I hear many of my peers using these same tired arguments. Well, I know the prophet says this, but the professionals say something entirely different. I know the prophet says that, but I really can't be bothered. I mean, really? You know how lame it is for me to winter here? It goes against my own personal preference. So we're just going to disregard. And then in case they need any more reassurance, they say, well, the mass majority of people say, oh, don't worry about that. I mean, after all, Ellen White is fallible. Have you heard that before? Now, granted, was Ellen White perfect? No. Was her grocery list inspired? No, it was not. But I'll tell you, folks, when God gives a message to his prophet. That's no longer the prophet speaking. That's the voice of God that you're choosing to either follow or ignore. It's out of God's mercy that he sends a prophet for our best good. But I hear too many people say, oh, the prophet is fallible. Friends, that is dangerous ground because as soon as you do that, it's a slippery slope, because now I'm putting myself in the position of God and now I choose if this is inspired or not. That goes against my personal preference. That can't be inspired. That goes against my preference. That can't be inspired. The majority says the professionals say that can't be. And you know, before long, I take the same approach to scripture. And before long, all of it is null and void. So be careful, friends. Be careful what you do in regards to the counsel given through God's prophet. But maybe I'm just off on a little soapbox because they don't see Paul as authoritative. So we'll just leave that alone and move on. Continuing, we'll see how it works out. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they obtained their desire, who do you think made a nice south wind blow softly? Can the devil do some of those kinds of things? This is our chance. This is our opportunity. Everybody in the boat, we're going to Phoenix. Beaches are great in Phoenix. They sailed close by Crete. Verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose. Sounds like Satan as well. Called Uroch Ledon. Or we could say northeaster in our vernacular. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. You know what that means when you're in a sailboat and you let the wind drive? We can't fight it. We've tried and we've gone this way and that. In fact, if you're in a big storm, there's no steady wind to follow. It's going every which way and your sail keeps going back and forth. And if you're not careful, it could break. So we're just going to bring it all down and we're just going to let the wind take us wherever it wants to go. verse verse 16, and running under the shelter of an island called Clouda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it down on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sartus sands, they struck sail, and so were driven. Do you see some desperation here? And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, and the next day they lightened the ship. Oh, So we're not even to the third day. That's the next verse. We're already lightening the ship. How many suitcases did you bring? Don't need it. Throw it out. Well, what about the precious cargo? Throw it out. How come? Well, for good reason. We're scared. Verse 19. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, it may as well say, now that we had lost power and could not communicate with our GPS and had no clue where we were and no small tempest beat on us, all hope, the end of verse 20, all hope that we would be saved was finally, what? Given up. That's a bad place to be in, friends, when all hope is lost. Maybe you can speak from experience. I hope not. But when all hope is lost, there's a futility there. There's a woes me mentality. There's nothing I can do. Oh, well. All hope is lost. But then we go into verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss through verse 22. And now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of Life among you, but only of the ship. I imagine Paul interceded in a miraculous way that God would preserve their lives, and God, in some way, said, Okay. And so he says, Take heart no one's going to lose their life. Verse 23, for there stood by me this night an angel of the God of whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you. That's the prayer. He has granted you all those who sail with you. And therefore, again, in case you missed it, take heart, men. And Paul says, for I believe God. You didn't believe him the first time. You believe the professionals, and you believed what your preferences were, and the majority. But I'll tell you one thing. This is what God told me, and I believe God. Do you think in the midst of that storm, there were some other believers there too? Verse 26, however, we must run aground on a certain island. And this verse baffles me. Now, when the 14th night had come, 14th. As we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. That's about 120 feet. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. That's about 90 feet. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern. And friends, from here, I want to talk about four anchors that when you find yourself in a storm and you're afraid you're going to run aground and dash yourself on the rock, throw out these four anchors. Are you ready? We're going to have to go fast because we need to be throwing out four potluck dishes. Four anchors. Anchor number one, the anchor of prayer. When you're in a bad place, you pray. I think what we just read from Paul is evidence of a man that prayed. In the midst of 14 days of storm, Paul found time and a way to pray and he answers and says i'll preserve you i'll be with you here we have mark 1 verse 35 now in the morning having risen along while before daylight he jesus went out and departed to a solitary place and there he did what prayed jesus saw the power of prayer the importance of the connection directly with he and his heavenly father Jesus himself was often in prayer. His humanity made prayer a necessity. If the Savior of men, the Son of God, felt the need of prayer, how much more should fallible, sinful mortals feel the necessity of fervent and constant prayer? It was Jesus' lifeline, but somehow we think it's optional. What is prayer? It's not necessary that we make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive him. Prayer does not bring God down to us or to me. It brings me up to Him. And, friends, God is ready and willing to hear the sincere prayer of the humblest of His children. And yet, there's often a reluctance on our part to make known our wants to God. Why? Is it our pride? Is it our own self sufficiency? I don't know what to say. Just talk to Him as you would a friend and pray that He'll lead you to verses that you can claim just like we heard described this morning. Thank you, Bryce. That was a blessing. I already read that to you. I'm going to read you one other one here. Oh, now I went too fast. Okay. Never is one repulsed who comes to him with a contrite heart. Elizabeth showed me this this week. Not one sincere prayer is lost. Amid the anthems of the celestial choir, God hears the cries of the weakest human being. We pour out our heart's desire in our closets, We breathe a prayer as we walk by the way and our words reach the throne of the monarch of the universe. Friends, that's amazing. That's the power of prayer. Continuing, we still got to pick up a few more anchors here. I don't know if we read the rest of 29. It says they dropped anchors for fear of the rocks. And it says they prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. uh Uh-oh, what's happening now? When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Sounds a little bit like knowing the ark, doesn't it? Then the soldiers, what'd they do? They cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall down off the boat. These sailors saw an opportunity to cut and run. I don't know how everybody here is going to make it, but I know how we're going to make it. There's a skiff over there. You look strong. You look healthy. Let's go over there. Let's lower it down. We'll be on land. And who cares about the rest of these people? Cut and run. But friends, Paul knew that staying together was the secret to their survival. It's the anchor of unity. And in times of life, the temptation can be strong to abandon ship, to cut and run. Every man, woman, and child for themselves. There's that moment when it seems easier to walk out on a troubled marriage. Then to face it and work towards resolution. There's a human nature that wants to retreat, to lock the door, to pull the blinds, but friends, that's no way to survive a storm. Alienate, we will sink further into depression or alcohol or drugs or even suicide for some. No, a quick ditch is not the answer. I urge you, stay aboard the ship. Lock arms, stay in touch with those that love you most, and stay united with the Lord. You and I are designed by God to make it together. So the anchor of unity holds us close. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. How? In unity. Friends, nothing weakens a church or a family for that matter as disunion and strife. But the inverse of that is also true. Unity has an irresistible influence upon the world. Why? Because the world sees that there's all kinds of disunity. Don't believe me. Turn on the news for 10 seconds. But if Christ is in your heart and if Christ is in my heart, there is a unity that is palpable, that the world takes notice of. And they say, what do you have that we don't have? What did Jesus say in John 17, 21? I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Why are they one? Because as I'm in you and as you are in me, Christ doesn't work against himself. The Father doesn't work against himself. So when Christ is in me, when Christ is in you, we are united. It's not that you give away some of your ideals and I give away some of my morals. No, no, no. It's about being united in Christ, being united in his word that brings true unity. Testimonies, Volume 1, 182. It says, as we approach the last crisis, it is of vital importance that harmony and unity exist. And what is this harmony? Harmony and unity exist because the Bible is made the guide of life. You ever heard the expression, reading off the same page? That's how unity is achieved in God's church. And it's one of the anchors. Continuing on. Verse 31 Paul said to the centurion soldiers unless these men stay in the ship you cannot be saved and the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off praise the lord verse 33 and as day was about to dawn Paul implored them all to take food saying today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing therefore i urge you to take nourishment for this is for your what survival since not a hair will fall from your head of anyone of any of you verse 35 and when he had said these things he took bread and gave thanks to god in the presence of them all and when he had broken it he began to eat is that necessary to include in the story they eat well i think it is it's the anchor of renewal what's the anchor of renewal well it's replenishing reviving if you will what do we say here or what do we read here in mark 6 verse 31 and he said to them this is jesus speaking Come aside by yourselves to des- deserted place and rest a while. The disciples were tired, for there were many coming and going. They did not even have time to eat, the Bible passage says. And what does Jesus say? Come and rest a while. It's okay, it's just James. Rest a while. This is one of no less than 11 occasions on when Jesus retired from his work in order to escape his enemies or to pray in solitude for rest or for private conference with his disciples. Apparently, it was important to Jesus to come away, to rest, to be revived, to take nourishment. And sometimes when we go through the storms of life, we ignore all those things. I'm going to pull an all nighter and get no sleep. I'm going to skip meals. I'm going to go, go, go. I'm going to bail, bail, bail. We're in a time of storm, of crisis. There'll be time to sleep when I'm dead. And if you don't get any sleep, you just might be. I mean, how basic is this? You're going through a storm, keep exercising. You're going through a storm, keep eating nutritious foods. You're going through a storm, keep going to bed on time or early. And you're going through a storm, don't just take in physical food, take in spiritual food. I mean, how obvious is this passage that he says, and we took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and then we broke it and began to eat. This sounds very much like the communion verses that we read. And then he took bread, and he broke it. He gave thanks, and they ate. And he said, "This, do this in remembrance of me, right? This is my body, which is broken for you. Feed on his word. Renewal, rest, nourishment. Paul says it's for your survival. It's not optional. You have to do it. Can you imagine finding a storm for two weeks and getting virtually no nourishment? But that's how most of us respond to storms. Don't do it. Isaiah 40, verse 29. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Who gives power? Who increases strength? God does. So when you're going through a storm, what does the devil want for you? To abandon all these things. So you get weaker and weaker and weaker. And after 14 days aboard, in this storm that you're struggling and and trudging through and bailing and rowing, and you're exhausted, you're vulnerable. And he says, that's just what I want. Isaiah 40, verse 31, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint we got to pick up one more anchor. There was four of them. We slipped past it here. It's in the last part of verse 34. When he says, take nourishment, this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. This is really referencing the promise he already made. In verses 22 to 25, I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And he talks about the angel that came and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar and indeed God has granted you all, those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God. What's the last anchor? The anchor of faith. Taking God at his word, saying, I believe what you say. Say it like Paul, I believe God. What did Pastor Ferguson like to say? God says it. I believe it. That settles it. It's simple, it's basic, it's profound. Exodus fourteen, fourteen, the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Maybe that's what you need most of all in your storm this morning. Isaiah forty one ten Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I'll uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. I could have grabbed promises from the New Testament. There's tons of them there. It's replete with promises. These are all from the Old Testament. All ones Paul could have claimed. Anchors of faith. Isaiah 43, 2 and 3, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Anchor of faith. Don't think just because it's last on the list that it's least important. It really came up first. But they're all necessary. They all go together. Isaiah 54, 10. Through the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed. Yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. Don't miss that. Mountains may shake. The hills may fall into the depths of the sea. It may get really bad. But my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. It cannot be shaken. Nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion On you and me. What an amazing God. Acts the Apostles 4.42, it says, He, Paul, grasped by faith the arm of infinite power. How much is infinite, friends? And his heart was stayed upon God. We could say, therefore, he had no fears for himself. He knew that God would preserve him to witness at Rome for the truth of Christ. But his heart yearned with pity for the poor souls around him, sinful, degraded, unprepared to die. Describes our time, doesn't it? As he earnestly pleaded with God to spare their lives, it was revealed to him that his prayer was granted. And she later says, a few paragraphs down, at these words, hope revived. Through one man, hanging on to these anchors of prayer, of unity, of renewal, and of faith quickly finish the story verse 37 and in all there were 276 persons on the ship that's what's surprising to me. That's more than I expected. 276. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors and lift them in the sea, meanwhile losing the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the main sail to the wind and made for shore... But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. This storm is relentless. Verse 42, and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Why? Because if a prisoner gets loose under my watch, then they'll kill me. And so I'm going to just do away with them first, lest any of them should swim away and escape. Verse 43, but the centurion, I think this is Julius, wanted to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. That's implying that there's many that can't swim. That's a nerve-wracking 14 days. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. So it was, last verse, that they all escaped safely to land. Every last one of them. Can you imagine the scene? Everybody just going for whatever they can find and trying to grab and swim and go to shore. And then there's some people that make it to shore and they're trying to throw out some lifeline to those that aren't quite there yet. And the waves keep pounding, the rain keeps falling. But the last verse says, and so it was, they all escaped safely to land. How many started the voyage? 276. How many were promised they'd make it? 276 how many made it safely to shore? 276. Friends, God is faithful. And when the strong winds blow, and when destruction on the rocks seems certain, and when your circumstances leave you with no hope, throw out an anchor. The anchor of prayer, the anchor of unity, to pull together arm and arm, the anchor of renewal, Nourishing yourself, feeding yourself on good physical, but plenty of uh, physical food, sleep, water, rest, but certainly spiritual food. Feeding regularly on the bread of life and use the anchor of faith. Stand on his promises. And you say, well, I'm not in a storm right now. Perfect. Polish your anchors. Memorize Bible promises. Develop such a relationship with Jesus Christ that you could be described as thick with the Almighty. And then when the storm comes, you'll have the peace of Paul that will carry you through any storm. 276 boarded the boat and 276 survived the storm for no other reason than the power of God. Will you cling to him today in your storm? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have an anchor that keeps our souls. We praise you for the ways that you have kept us in the past. We praise you for the ways that you are keeping us in the present. And Lord, may we never fear the future as we hold on to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.